0: Dr. Ethel Tongohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Anties. In previous episodes, we've talked a lot about how in academia, there seems to be this assumption that all of us, whether we're professors or graduate students, have access to the same financial stability. But we know that this isn't true. In episode 25, We had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Rebecca Major about the norms of academia that make it harder for first-gen scholars who don't come from the same kind of financial privilege to survive. In this episode, we want to talk about another dimension to this taboo of talking about money and that is the experiences of international students and international scholars, particularly those from countries in what is known as being part of the Global South for which Western countries impose onerous visa requirements. To talk about this, we're so honored to have Dr. Martha Balaguerra, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Dr. Balaguerra and I are buddies and I'm so excited to have her with us today. Dr. Malaguerra grew up in Bogota, Colombia, did her master's at the University of Essex and her PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And she does amazing work on international migration, which you'll hear about in the interview. She has experienced firsthand the struggles that international scholars face both as a student and now as a professor. It was a really eye-opening conversation. Enjoy! So Martha, my first question
1: for you is, what was your experience like as a graduate student and now as an assistant professor when trying to meet uh, your financial and your economic needs?
2: I think it's really important to demystify these issues. So I I think it's um, really important to answer it with honesty Mm -hmm. because I often have students attend my office hours Mm. and they ask for advice about graduate school. And something that needs to be said is that graduate school is a period of huge economic sacrifice Mm -hmm. and that it can only be uh, not a sacrifice if you come with a lot of privilege with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as a graduate student, I was offered a three-year funding package. Mm -hmm. In my letter, um, there was also a statement that said something along the lines of students usually get funding well beyond the three-year period Mm -hmm. up to their sixth year in the program, right? Mm -hmm. So this statement sounds really nice, but it's not a firm offer, and it's Mm. completely up to the discretion of the institution to provide it or not. And this is something that I didn't really gauge very well.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So it introduces a lot of precarity, a time in which one needs financial support the most. for Because, you know, if you realize after three years of funding, you're suddenly, you know, it's up for grabs, the question yeah. of whether you're going to have a salary of no, or not. And you have mm-hmm. already finished your coursework, your comprehensive exams, you're ready to embark on a dissertation project, but suddenly you cannot predict your finances. No, yeah. So for me, that translated into overworking myself oh. and getting student loans in my country
3: mm. with
2: very high interest rates mm. because I was not eligible for student loans in the U.S. as an international student. Mm-hmm, 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 there were mm-hmm. times that I had five or more, of, or more jobs at once. Oh, my God. So really? I was re- oh. Yeah. I, I was resident manager in family housing at my university. That was like a lot of help, but that o- was also a lot of work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I was TA for two departments because my department didn't guarantee my funding. I was research assistant, research assistant for five faculty. And oh sometimes God. I would do this work simultaneously.
1: Oh.
2: And on top of that, I did house sitting and cat sitting to make ends meet.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> on top of doing your
2: dissertation research, right? Exactly. Like... <laughs> exactly. And coursework and exams, et cetera. So it's a lot of work. Um, and it's, it's a lot of sacrifices I'd said before. So when, you know, now I would have had to do all of this regardless of whether my funding package was three years or five years
3: Mm -hmm.
2: long, because to give you an idea, and that's the other part that needs to be said is that the salary that you get as a grad student is not enough. No. Or at least it wasn't enough for me. Uh, So to give you an idea, my rent was $700 a month when I started the program. And my first bi-weekly check was exactly $350. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that's when I realized the bottom line here is that I cannot eat with my graduate student salary. No. Because I could barely afford rent, right? Yeah. So Uh. when I was... Yeah, that that was pretty precarious. Um, so I could give you a, a few other numbers to you know, sure, to also yeah. Give you let's an idea. let's like, talk
1: numbers. <laughs> let's concretize this. Yeah, right. So rent was seven hundred dollars, okay. And then what other expenses did you have
2: to take I care mean, of, of? Yeah. Of course food. And I I would like even ask my peers, and I remember having asked a person who was in another department at the time. He was also from Colombia, from mm-hmm. where I am from. And he told me, well, I spend like around $50 a week in groceries. And I was shocked because mm-hmm. that was like a, an important sum, not mm-hmm. having any any further income apart from those $350 that I was making biweekly. Mm-hmm. 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 And, okay, so that was grad school. So I was very lucky to get a fellowship to do my fieldwork. And mm-hmm. that was, that would pay me Fifteen hundred dollars a month, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that was that was a little better because my fieldwork happened in Mexico for the most part. So because of the exchange rate, that was that put me in a in a much more comfortable position. Mm-hmm. But when the the fellowship year ended, I had to pay more than five thousand dollars in taxes in the United States. What? Wait, wait. Whoa. Why? Exactly. Why did you have it w- <laughs> What? Right. It, it was not withdrawn from my fellowship. And so that was that was the unhappy ending of my build work, my dissertation research fellowship.
1: Wait, I'm confused. Why did you have to th- th- taxes to the US
2: government? Yes. Yes, because you know you're getting this um this support my my fellowship was actually federally funded. Oh okay. And there's no like good orientation, like you need to save this amount or you need to have you, you just have to figure this out yourself, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so when I figured this out, it was $5,000 that I had to pay in taxes.
1: Oh, my God. No one told you yeah. about this beforehand? like
2: I mean, they told me, you have to figure this out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would have never imagined that what? I had to pay this much, right? Because the previous years, and that's perhaps why I was getting my check so small, my taxes were taken from my check, right? Right so that that's something I didn't know quite well to navigate, so yeah, that was that was the, the part of it. So I thought for the year that it lasted, I felt okay, and then boom, I had to pay five thousand dollars in taxes in the u s That's
1: awful, so you had to kind of find a way to kind of cobble together cobble together this funding to pay to right. pay your taxes, right. oh my God. Yeah. So can I just backtrack a little bit, right? Because I think it's important for our listeners to know this as well. So you said that when you got your letter of offer, they offered you three years of guaranteed funding, right? Yes. And then basically, we all know that no PhD student finishes in three years. So that meant that you had to kind of, yes, find kind of additional funding for each year that you're in the program. You know what, Martha, one thing I didn't know was that some students negotiated with the department how much funding they got. Did you know this?
2: I didn't know when I came to the program. And again, you know, I was strict with this statement, like students get funding beyond their third year Mm -hmm. often, like most of the time. Right. But yeah, then I realized that subsequent generations of grad students were offered better funding packages because the university realized that they were not competitive with this kind of funding packages. People were even offered uh, some summer research funds. I always had to compete for those. So like the amount that I was talking about was only for the nine-month period that I was working for the university. My Uh, summer was salary less, uh, right? Yeah. So this is why I had to do all of these extra jobs because I never had enough money for the summer.
1: I'm just shaking my head because I think – What's appalling is that first, a lot of people, especially those who are first generation, especially those who aren't from the U.S. or Canada or from the countries where they're pursuing their PhD studies, a lot of people don't know this, right? And so already from the start, there are these vast inequalities between PhD students who are coming into into the program,
2: right? Yes, yes, absolutely. There were people who were admitted without any funding package and people would accept those conditions i don't know i don't know why of course there's huge inequalities when it comes to private universities public universities i attended a, a public university mm-hmm. so i know that there are better funding packages in other places mm-hmm. but again these are some of the things that i didn't know quite to navigate very well because i haven't I, I didn't have much information about how the system worked so i didn't know i could negotiate i didn't know i could perhaps find better funding somewhere else
1: etc. 100%. And we'll we'll circle back to this uh, at the end of our conversation, because I also want us to think about ways to make it more equitable, right? Especially for graduate students. But I guess one thing I'm thinking now is, okay, you're an assistant professor, right? Like, you know, you're an assistant professor, you're no longer a graduate student. Has it become easier navigating these financial constraints?
2: Well, in a way of course i mean the the proportion of salary is it's huge right yeah. between being a grad student and being a professor but because of some structural conditions such as the cost of living, living in the gta it really doesn't make that huge a difference mm. so mm-hmm. you can see like a nominal difference in the numbers
3: mm-hmm.
2: but uh, the actual difference is not that great so mm. Let me just also circle back to something else that happened Mm -hmm. between my grad school years and my faculty years, which was my dissertation writing fellowship. I was very lucky to get that, right? right. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that was a fellowship that I had to be present for Mm -hmm. in the city of San Diego Mm
3: -hmm. in
2: California, which is a very expensive city. And so it's it's a similar situation to what happens here in Toronto, right? So my fellowship was $2,000 a month. But then it's, it's pretty incredible that in the city of San Diego, you can find a spot in a, in a living room for $1,000. It's so expensive, the rent, that people mm-hmm. rent a spot in the living room. <laughs> like not even a room, you know? And yeah. it would cost $1,000. So it was shocking how expensive that city was. So mm-hmm. throughout all these years, it's an accumulation of debt, right? Mm-hmm. 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 And then you enter the job market. You have to buy nice clothes. Yes. And sometimes you even have to pay for the fly out.
1: Yes, exactly. Because some schools and ask get you reimbursed. to kind of... Yes, you get reimbursed later. That's bullshit, by the way. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It's Ugh. pretty difficult, right? So you need to in- increase your debt with no promise that you're going to succeed in the job market, right? Luckily, I got a job. But mm-hmm. then I moved here, and mm-hmm. the conventional wisdom is that you shouldn't spend more than a third of your net salary in rent
3: mm-hmm.
2: because otherwise you're jeopardizing your financial security, Yeah, which is very true, right?
3: Yeah.
2: And so I struggled a lot to find a modest apartment in Toronto, and when I received my first check, I realized that half of it went to rent. Mm. And so between my student loans, my car loan, And my credit card loans, my credit card, you know, interest and all of the debt that I had, I was left with less than $500 a month for food. So again, I was like, I have a decent job, but it is not enough to afford food, which is, it's it's a huge thing to say. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: It's
2: demoralizing. It's depressing.
3: Yeah,
1: for sure. And I think that's one of the kind of... Mis- like misnomers that I kind of wanted to talk about too, right? Especially in, in in well, a lot of people, first of all, assume that professors have it made, right? And of course, in some ways we do, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, when you get a stable uh, tenure track job, that's oftentimes seen as kind of winning the lottery, right? Especially in this market. I think what's difficult um, for us to kind of um, try to impart to other people is that depending on the city that you live in, depending on other costs, depending on how much debt you accrued, right, yeah. in your studies, it's still harder to kind of get your head above water, so to speak.
2: And then you add to that the moving expenses, mm-hmm. right, that you also get reimbursed for. Yeah, depending on the policy of the university that you go to, many people even have to pay the immigration expenses, really? right? Yes. It was not my case, but uh, I know of many people who have had to pay for their immigration expenses. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of upfront expenses Mm -hmm. that there's no good salary that you could have to cover for that. So you live a life of debt.
1: (laughs) You live a life of debt. That's such an apt way of putting it. One thing I also wanted to kind of you know, flag here is that we also need to let our listeners know that not all professors have the same salary, right? Like yes, yes. you know, that this is this is something that we have to negotiate. Yes,
2: right? Absolutely. I think what one of the most difficult things to do in the job market is to negotiate your salary.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It requires a lot of social capital, I suppose, yep. but also a lot of racial privilege and gender privilege and all kinds of things
1: 100%. go into
2: that. It's very individualizing. This logic of, of that is very much about fragmentation. We need to negotiate as individual entities, and we're in competition with each other. And so that's a structural problem that really affects us all. Mm-hmm. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, as you said, there's like racialized and gendered repercussions. And perhaps, yeah, the person's social capital going into the negotiation uh, affects (laughs) how much they end up getting. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, too, is you said that you're also an international visa holder, right? So you came into your graduate studies as an international student. And now as a professor, uh, you also have... um, Do you you, you still have like an international visa or um, how is that? How does that work as a professor?
2: I'm I'm currently a permanent resident of Canada. Okay. But this is a recent development for two years and a half. I believe in Mm -hmm. my current position, I was still not a visa holder, but a work permit holder. So I was using, and I still am using my my Colombian passport because I don't have any other passports. Right. Mm So I'm a permanent resident. So I can enter, canada freely but if i go elsewhere i'm colombian for all purposes
1: okay so can i ask what constraints does this pose or did this pose as you do your work
2: yeah no it's i think that perhaps this is not applicable for everyone but to have a colombian passport is kind of like an extreme situation Mm. Although, of course, you know, to various degrees, everyone who's not a U.S. or Canadian passport holder faces similar challenges, right? But to be Colombian, it's pretty extreme because when I started my master's program, so the Mm -hmm. first time that I went abroad to study, Mm -hmm. there were only 15 countries in the world that didn't require a visa for Colombians. (laughs) And this is pretty, pretty bad, right? So it's all of the labor that you put into applying for these visas, right? But it's also the money that you have to pay for them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Oftentimes to be given a visa for 10 days, right? So this has happened to me in the past. I did my, my uh, master's in England. So I was close to the rest of Europe. But if I wanted to go anywhere, I, I was given a visa, like literally for 18 days, right? <sighs> And also when I went to Mexico for the first time, Mexico is the primary site of my research, um, my mm-hmm. dissertation research, right? Mm-hmm. So when I went to Mexico for the first time, I was denied a Mexican visa, what? even though I paid for it. Ultimately, after many interventions of all kinds of people, <laughs> I got a permission to enter Mexico for 10 days.
1: Oh, just 10 days?
2: Yeah. Oh my God. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty... It's a reality check for Colombians that you really are not enjoying the privilege of having free mobility in the world. Mm
3: -hmm. No matter Mm -hmm.
2: how privileged you may be for other reasons, for class, for for race, for whatever, but already being Colombia puts you in a state of disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, when that combines with your gender, with your race, with your class background, then you can be easily targeted at airports, uh, you can be you can face like very precarious situations, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, for the most part, I was very um, lucky when I was doing my PhD.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I was al- it, there was always the threat. You know, I need to behave. I need to do things right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot expose myself. I have to be <laughs> very careful with my trips and my visa applications and have yes. everything justified. And so the effect is very disciplining, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know that your mobility can be impeded at any point. And so, for mm-hmm. example, for me, it meant the, the kind of research that I do is very political. Of course, I study politics, right? Yeah, yeah. But when I was in the field, I had to assume a very, very conservative way of carrying myself, if you will,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. vis-a-vis what other researchers could do, right? Mm -hmm. Because I knew that the minute something happened, my Colombian passport was going to become an issue
3: Mm
2: -hmm. and Mm -hmm. was going to be much more difficult for me to get away with anything, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that added, of course, to the fact that in Mexico you cannot exercise your political rights if you're a foreigner. Colombians have been targeted specifically when they are doing research or when, as I was saying before, when they cross borders, mm-hmm. uh, interrogations or deportations for no reason or arbitrary treatment, harmful treatment in airports. It has been documented, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. So it's
2: a chilling and disciplining effect that it creates on you.
1: I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around this. So when you were doing fieldwork, knowing that you had to be extra conservative in the way you kind of conducted yourself because you don't want your mobility to be constrained, like, how did you kind of try to navigate this? Were you always hyper aware of that possibility? Did that kind of affect, you know, the interviews that you did? Like, how did you how did you kind of troubleshoot this?
2: (laughs) So yes, it was always on my mind. And perhaps not the interviews as such, I didn't feel as constrained with the interviews that I conducted. But mm-hmm. with the participant observation, because I do ethnographic fieldwork, yeah, and you may be familiar with this um, theme of the caravans from Central America crossing Mexico.
3: Yeah,
2: I started to conduct research on the caravans when before they became viral, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So when I was conducting research on the caravans, I felt very constrained mm. to participate in my research, right? So I mm-hmm. could observe, but I, I couldn't participate as much, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. to participate in the caravans would, for, for example, mean to chant with the migrants, yeah. the, the things that they were chanting yeah. on the yeah. roads, yeah. the things that they were denouncing, the violence that they were bringing awareness about.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so uh, that's the part that really constrained my my field work, right? So I would conduct my interviews more or less freely, mm-hmm. but my participation was not as free ever. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever feel that I could do any kind of active saying of anything, right, mm-hmm. in the field. And so that puts you in a in an interesting position also in the in the in the minds of those who are who you are accompanying, for example, mm-hmm. in these caravans, Like, how can people trust you if they don't see you, like, really engaging, right? Mm
3: -hmm,
2: mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I had to deal with that during during my research a lot. That's a lot to have to deal with. The other experience that I had when I was crossing from Canada into the U.S., I I was already a faculty member here. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And the caravans became viral. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And they also became a really uh, contentious political issue and many people were targeted by immigration authorities when they were crossing borders yeah. anyone who was related to the caravans this was has been documented there has been there have been yeah. articles published about this journalistic mm-hmm. articles journalistic documentation scandals of the blacklist mm-hmm. held by by immigration authorities of researchers or activists or journalists mm-hmm. related to the caravan so when I was I was actually pregnant when I when this happened to me. I crossed mm-hmm. to the United States. Uh, I flew from here to Logan Airport in Boston.
3: Yeah.
2: And I was sent to secondary inspection. <sighs> I was interrogated for an hour. Oh my
3: god!
2: Everything with you know with n- names like, uh, how are you related to this person? What? Right. It was not like something in general. It was very peculiar. Specific. Like Yeah. How. Why did you cross with this person what? from Tijuana into San Diego this day? What were you doing with such and such, right?
3: Mm-hmm. And then
2: at the end, at the end of all that, the the officer the officer tells me, okay, because I had, of course, I had good answers for all of these questions, right? It was my research. Mm-hmm. And then this mm-hmm. this person tells me, so of course you're not a terrorist. What? But it doesn't, I- but it doesn't mean that you're. <gasps> that your friends are not. Oh my god. So, yeah, yet another chilling effect, right? So, that how that translated into my research is that I have been very careful even with what I publish and say and how I say it. So, it's disciplining my research and my intellectual life all along.
1: Oh my goodness. That's that's I'm just shaking my head here. Um, how do you think people other scholars who are also you know facing kind of similar dynamics um especially graduate students um who want to kind of research something that let's just say that that's politically contentious but are also aware that if they do that um their ability to stay in the country as international visa holders might get compromised like how what advice would you give them <laughs>
2: Well, actually, actually, I don't. I don't think that I have good advice on this okay. because, yeah. really, the only message that I can convey is that people need to be very obedient, right? <laughs> yeah. You need to not be transgressive. You need to not expose yourself. Yeah, and I don't think this is good advice. Yeah, but I. I don't think that there's any way that you can really be transgressive without being willing to pay the price.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Absolutely, and I think actually giving voice to your experiences will allow people to, you know, feel heard if they have similar experiences too, right? So I I thank you for that and I thank you for sharing that. Um, Going with a theme of advice and thinking about, you know, the issues that we've discussed in this conversation with respect to, you know, the lack of transparency when it comes to funding packages and the lack of consistency across the board when different PhD students and, and professors are treated with respect to, like, funding packages and salaries. What do you think we can do, Martha, to to shift the system, to make it more equitable? Like, what are some of the concrete, <laughs> concrete steps we can take to make it more equitable? What do you think?
2: Right, right. Well, I would start by saying, you know, this is a good first step to talk about things. Yeah. These topics are very much taboo. No one says how much their funding packages are or whatever. And so the, the divide and conquer strategy of treating everyone selectively and then we do not talk to each other about these topics, it really ends up playing against all of us, yeah. regardless of gender, regardless of race. It plays against all of us, right? Yeah. It allows for more exploitation. Yeah. We don't talk about these things and if there's no transparency, it's, it's a big obstacle, right? But also... I think that the individualizing effect that all this has needs to be combated by acting collectively. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Martha.
2: Thank you, Yato.
0: I really want to thank Martha for being so open about the challenges that she faced through her career. One of my takeaways is that this simply isn't an individual story. These experiences are the rules of explicit rules that create precarity and create a situation where nothing can go wrong for international students if they are to survive. There's tremendous pressure for international students not only to meet program requirements if you're graduate students, but also to make sure that your research aligns with geopolitical considerations. So I really and truly appreciated Martha's accounts of some of the pressure she faced on the field and in trying to get access to countries that required visas. Colleges and universities rely on an extractive relationship with international students. And if our universities trade on this precarity, it will not be resolved through discretionary, individualized decision-making. This precarity also means that nothing can go wrong for these students, but we know that this is of course not the case. Thankfully, students are increasingly speaking out against Canada's and other countries' predatory relationship with international students. There's a really great story talking about the Canadian contacts in the Toronto Star about this, which we'll link to in the show notes. Over the next few months, we'll continue this conversation on academic aunties, tackling the power of the passport, predatory universities, and what this means for international students and international scholars. And that's Academic Antis. You can follow us on Twitter at at If you use Mastodon, find us at academicantis at maz.to. Do you prefer email? You can message us at podcast at academicantis.com. And finally, visit academicantis.com slash support to find out how to support this podcast. This includes becoming a Patreon supporter, which goes right into supporting our production costs. Today's episode of Academic Anties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Shu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.